Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Have you ever just like totally, totally failed and you messed up big time? You sinned royally. I'm not talking about like your wife asked you to take out the trash and for the sixth time in a row you forgot. I'm not talking about little stuff like that. I'm talking about big stuff where you've totally messed it up. That you are filled with shame. That if your spouse would know this about you, their whole opinion of you would be changed. If your kids knew this about you, they would be devastated. In fact, you can't even believe that you've failed and you've sinned and you've messed up so incredibly because you didn't think you were even capable of that level of depravity and wickedness. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Don't need to raise your hand. You ever been there? What do you do? What do you do when you failed royally? How do you try and start again? What does God think about all this? And is there a such thing as a second chance with your family and your God? Today, we're going to discover an answer. Here at Crosswinds Church, we've been teaching through the book of Genesis on, on both campuses. And we've just completed teaching Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Now, in these first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's sort of dealing with the world. It's always big stuff. It's like, how did sin enter the world? And then it was God judging the entire world with Noah and the flood. And then it's how did we end up with all the different languages around the world? And we had the Tower of Babel and the scattering and the making of languages, nations, and cultures. And it's been sort of a big picture thing. When we got to Genesis chapter 12, it's like the focus shifted. Moved from a global event scale down to one man and his family. Last week, Pastor Jordan introduced us to this man. His name is Abraham. Abraham is a huge man in the Bible. In fact, his story will dominate Genesis chapter 11 all the way to Genesis chapter 25. In the Scriptures, his name is mentioned over 300 times. And even in the New Testament... 11 of the 27 New Testament books talk about him. I mean, that's a big-time character. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the hall or the, fame of, the hall of faith, the sort of the, the, the famous list. Most of the top guys, they get like one verse, you know, <laughs> mentioning them and their great faith. Moses, he gets six verses. He's a big-time dude. Abraham gets 12. He is a huge character in our Bible, and we're about ready to start studying his story. Last week, Pastor Jordan did an excellent job of introducing us to Abraham. But for us to understand the next part of his story, 
I need to refresh you a little bit with some of the things that Pastor Jordan shared last week to get back to understand the rest of his backstory. We need to know where he came from and what his life was like. Well, Abraham was born in the city of Ur. It sounds like a short name, but it says Ur of the Chaldeans, which means Ur of the Babylonians. Actually, the city of Ur was located right next to Babel, which is where the Tower of Babel was located. Um, the city of Ur, you also need to know, was a modern cosmopolitan city. It was about four miles on each side. It had a half a million people in it. The city of Ur was very modern and sophisticated, even by today's standards. They had supermarkets, they had libraries, they had shopping centers, they, had, they even had school systems. Excavations have revealed uh, in the city of Ur that kids brought home their papers. And they actually have unearthed kids' school papers. And they even unearthed kids' report cards from the city of Ur when Abraham was there. That's around 2000 B.C. So Abraham, he grows up as a modern cosmopolitan city dweller. But God breaks into his life. And God speaks to him and God, God calls him. And many people wonder, well, what was it about Abraham that made him special? Why did God chose to be gracious to Abraham instead of somebody else? And the Scriptures are clear that it's just simply because. Because. Because God chose to be gracious. There is nothing about Abraham that made him special to merit this or deserve this. But God broke into his life to save him and his descendants. And it's just like us, you know? There's nothing that we deserve, but God broke into each one of our lives through Jesus Christ to save us. We don't deserve any of it. When God broke into Abraham's life, He gave him three things to do. He said, leave your country, leave your culture, and leave your family. And then He gave him, actually, seven promises when He left. Now, I'm not going to go into all the promises because Pastor Jordan did some of that last week, but let me just refresh your memory on some of them. First of all, he promised supernatural divine protection for him. He said, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. I'm on your side. Not only that, he says, but you're going to have descendants. A great nation is going to come from you. And for Abraham at this point, who was childless, that seemed like an interesting stretch of faith. But God promised it. Not only that, but he promised to give him a land, a whole entire land for his descendants. We know that as the promised land. He also said that the entire earth would be blessed through him. And we know that is ultimately fulfilled because of Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ, which is God in the flesh who came and died in our place for our sin to bring us back to God. This is what God promised Abraham, but leave your country, your culture, and your family. That's the first step. Now, Abraham was in the city of Ur. And what we find is Abraham had partial obedience. That ever happened to you? God clearly says something. You know what the Word says. But we don't fully obey. We sort of partially obey. Abraham, uh, he leaves his country, but he doesn't leave his culture and he doesn't leave his family. 
In fact, instead of leaving his family behind, Terah, which is his father, and Lot, which is his nephew, all decide to go with him. And what they do is they go to the city of Haran. So go ahead and put that up there. Between Ur and Haran, there is the Euphrates River. And so what they decide to do is they follow the Euphrates River up to the city of Haran. What is Haran like? Ur was a major city for worship of the moon god, as Pastor Jordan shared with you last week. Haran was also a major city of worship of the moon god. Ur was a major cosmopolitan city kind of place. Haran was also a major cosmopolitan city kind of place. So we moved, we left the country for one that's identical to the other one and never left your family. Partial obedience. What we find is that Abraham is stuck in Haran for 15 years. Obedience to God's command is sort of press pause on hold. After 15 years, Terah, Abraham's father, dies. And Abraham picks up and begins to, to head south. And he's going to head south into the land of Canaan. And this is something you need to know. The reason I gave you the background is because Ur and Haran were a modern, cosmopolitan, comfortable cities. That's what Abraham has lived in all of his life. When he goes south, he heads into the desert. He heads into the wilderness. He heads to a totally different kind of lifestyle. Remember, he's been in the city eating Chicago deep-dish pizza at five-star restaurants all of his life. Now, he's on a big camping trip in the wilderness eating military MREs. Now, that's a change. Also, we discover that when he goes down to the south, it says in a moment we'll see he runs into the Canaanites. The Canaanites are ultimately the descendants of Ham. Ham was the wicked son of Noah. And if you've been with us for earlier parts of this series, you learned that the, uh, Ham and his descendants were a very wicked, sexually perverse group of people. And so what this is saying is, is when he goes south into the promised land of Canaan, he runs off, he comes into a very bad neighborhood. Now he's living with a bunch of wicked, sexually perverse people. Let's pick up the story. Genesis chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem at the oak of Moreh. And at that time... The Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He finally gets to the city of Shechem, and God appears to him. Now remember, the last time we know God appears to him is when he was in Ur, 
like over 15 years ago, and he called him to go. And he had this long like pause up in here, and he finally gets down there, and God says, you know where you just drove your tent stakes? Where you just pounded those things in the ground with a hammer? This is the land. This is the place I'm going to give to you and your descendants. And you can just picture, Abraham is like, hey, I'm back doing what God wants me to do. I'm back going to where God wanted me to go. We've been paused for a while. I've been gone for a while, but I'm excited to be here. And then what it says is Abraham sets up an altar. What Abraham does is he starts to worship. Now, the interesting thing for you to know is that it says he comes to Shechem at the Oak of Moreh. The Oak of Moreh is a... Uh, place of worship for all these people who are far from God. So like he sets up the altar to the true God of the universe in a very dark place for people who are worshiping essentially demons. And what you need to see is Abraham is like the first evangelist, isn't he? Abraham is the first church planter right here in this dark and pagan community. He's worshiping the one true God because God has confirmed it to him. The story picks up. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. You wonder, like, why did this guy move? What's the deal going on? Well, you need to understand is that uh, if you're herding animals in this part of the, the world, during the winter months, you stayed in the valleys because that's where the grass grew. But during the summer months, it got much too hot to be in the valleys. It got dry, so you wanted to bring your herds up to the hillside to a higher elevation because that's where it was cooler and that's where the grass was growing. And this is exactly what you see here. Go ahead and put that map up there. There it is. You can see that Shechem and Bethel are very close to one another. He's not going too far. The main difference is elevation. He's trying to go to another community that's not too far away, still in the same area that God has given, but that's where I need to get my flocks up there. And what does he do when he gets to the next community? Same thing. Builds an altar. Starts worshiping God. He's your evangelist. He's your church planter. And he's like, you know, I really like this. God has called me here. I've come here. He's, God has confirmed that He's speaking to me again. And this is good. And then the bottom drops out of His world. It says, And Abraham journeyed on, going toward the Negev. Now, the Negev, most of us probably think of this as an area of the desert. And it is an area of the desert. As I did some reading on it, uh, people have said that it wasn't always necessarily a dry, barren place. There were times and seasons when it was nice and it was a, a good place, but it could turn like that. Turn rather quickly into a harsh and formidable environment. And that's apparently what happened to Abraham. He went down to the Negev, what looked good, and all of a sudden he finds himself in a famine. Now, this is where the historical background I just shared in the earlier part of the message is so important to understand. Abraham is a city guy. He's a comfortable guy. He's come from the city 
urban place. He's now doing camping trips. He's trying the wilderness thing. He's out there, and all of a sudden, he hits a famine. How many famines do you think Abraham has already gone through if you were an urban city dweller? Probably not many. He probably has always had pretty good food. Things have always gone well and always been comfortable. And now Abraham hits his first trial, his first crisis of faith. And look what it says he does. And now there was famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. God had promised him this land. God had spoken to him when he finally got to this land. Did God tell him to go to Egypt? Did God tell him to go to Egypt? Why did he go to Egypt? He's afraid. I'm not going to be able to survive. He's in a panic. Never been through this before. Sarah is saying, I only have one box of Bisquick left on the pantry shelf. You know, the animals are starting to show ribs on the side. The herders are saying, Abraham, you're the boss. You have to make a choice. You have to do something. We're all going to die. We can't make it. I don't care what your God said about this being the land we're supposed to be. I don't care that God confirmed it. we got to get out of here. And so what Abraham does is he doesn't deny God. He just sort of ignores Him. He doesn't deny God. He just sort of ignores Him and goes back to his own resources, which is, you know what? I know what to do. Let's head to Walmart, Super Walmart. You know where that's located at? Egypt. Egypt has the Nile River. They always have good food there. Let's get out of town and head there. And this is one of the things I want to point out to us, because it's not just Abraham that does this, but it's us who do this. In a crisis, we may not deny God, but we ignore Him. Isn't that true? When we hit a crisis, we may not deny God, but it's easy to ignore Him. You're like, God, I know how to solve this. I know what to do. I don't need to pray about this. I don't need to think about this. You know, I just need to solve it for you and move on. <laughs> Here's the thing. I think that God was intending to use this crisis as a way to make God's name famous through Abraham's life. But what Abraham did by not consulting God and just splitting town and heading to Walmart in Egypt, he denied God that opportunity. Later in history, God's people find themselves in this same kind of barren wilderness with no water. What does God do? Brings water out of a rock to make His name famous. Later in history, God's people find themselves in the barren wilderness with no food. What does God do? Manna every morning. God made His name famous by supernaturally providing for His people. And God has promised Abraham, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. But Abraham, he splits town and sort of misses that opportunity. Next thing I want to point out for you is, or the next question I want to ask is this. Did you ever begin to wonder? Things were going so well. Why did God allow this famine into Abraham's life? Why did God allow this trial, this famine, into Abraham's life? And I'm going to tell you, it was to test his faith, and it was to grow his faith. 
in the big picture of this book, this story is a lot about Abraham's faith and trust in God growing. And Abraham's faith and trust in God never grows until it is tested and until it is tried. It's the same thing with us. The only way that our faith and trust and confidence in God grows is when we hit a trial, is when we hit a crisis. It's the only way. You know, we always talk about God. God, I want to be mature in you. I want to be strong in you. I want to be confident in you. The only way you're going to get there is when God allows trials into your life and your feet get knocked out from under you and you have to go to Him in prayer and in desperation learn to lean on Him and depend on Him because you, there is nothing you can do to save yourself. And you're totally cast upon God and His mercy. And it is in those times when you finally discover that God is large and in charge of your life. And God does care for you because He carries you through those times. And your faith grows and your faith gets mature. There is no other way. Now, folks, I don't like trials. You don't like trials. But when we face them, from the perspective of what God wants to do in our life through them, they're very good. It's the only way to spiritual maturity. Look what the Scriptures say. James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Folks, God does not allow trials into our life because He hates us. He allows trials into our life because He loves us. He loves us too much to allow us to live a trial-free life. Because if we live a trial-free life, we will be perpetually spiritual children. There's no way to grow. And this is why God allows trials into Abraham's life. And it even says this in Scripture, that Jesus was perfected by suffering. It was God's will that Jesus would go through trials. Now, Abraham is in trials. He, they're running short on food. He's filled with fear. He's running to Egypt where he knows he can get food. And he's on the way into town, and he's acting in fear. Look what it says here. As Abraham lets fear of the future lead him into sin. When Abraham was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, well, I, I know you are a beautiful, you are, be you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, well, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake." And when Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, 
male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. You know, this is part of the story of Abraham we don't like to tell our kids. Remember, a couple weeks ago I joked and said, when it comes to Noah, we don't tell the second part of Noah's story, that after he uh, grew a vineyard and got drunk and ended up naked, passed out on the couch. We don't talk about that. Well, this is part of Abraham's story, the great man of faith that we don't talk about, because he says, we're going into town, honey. Take off your wedding ring and stop acting like you're my wife. You can flirt with the other men, act like you're my sister. Now, by the way, ladies, if your husband ever says that to you, to take off your wedding ring and, like, stop acting like you're his wife, you could just deck him, right? Yeah. And if he says, I'm just being biblical, hit him with a large Bible, really, because this is, this is not the kind of thing you want to imitate. This is Abraham living in fear. Abraham living in fear of the future leads to living in sin. Isn't that true? We're going to unpack this in a, few more, in a few minutes, but fear of the future leads to living in sin. He believes that he has to be political and he has to control everything when in reality, who is in charge of it all? Who has everything under control? God. He doesn't know this yet. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. I understand his emotions because apparently Abraham is a very beautiful woman. I mean, we're talking hot. I mean, we're talking sizzling hot. We're talking she's 65 years old right now, and she looks like she's 25 years old. We're talking she goes into a room, and like men's eyes pop out of their heads and their jaws hang open. And Abraham's like, this is why I live in the wilderness, you know? Because he says, when people see my wife, what's going to happen instantly is they're going to be like, we have to get this woman. We're going to bump him off to get her because she is one of a kind. Uh, that's what's going on in his head. Now, some of the commentators think that his plan went something like this. We don't know this is for sure, but it's potential that uh, he was her brother, which he technically is, by the way. Genesis 20, verse 12 will explain that if you want to check there. If he was her brother, then what would happen is if any suitors wanted to come along to marry her, they'd have to do all the suitor negotiations through him. So that way he'd know what was happening. So if things got too serious, he and his wife could skip town. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. We don't know that, but that may have been what his plan was. But it all sort of backfires because when you start scheming and, and trying to do all these little things to set your life up just right, it does backfire. You see, uh, the princes of Pharaoh are the one who notice Sarai, and they start speaking her praises to Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh just sends along the chariot, hop in, lady, you're part of my harem. No negotiations, uh, no talk. I'm the boss of the applesauce around here. Just get in. Well, things did not go well. Because why Abraham said, you know, pretend you're my sister so things go well with me because of, for your sake. Things went very well with Abraham, but they didn't go well for her. How did they go well with Abraham? What happened is uh, Pharaoh says, you're about ready to become my new in-law, so we can't have you as a... a an average Joe, I mean, if you're my in-law, we've got to, like, 
give you some kind of gifts. So what we find is he gives her, um, he gives him camels and male servants and free female servants and male donkeys and female donkeys. And that doesn't sound like too impressive until you study this in its historical context. And here's what you need to know. Camels were not that plentiful at that time. So if you had a couple camels, or excuse me, I meant to say donkeys. Donkeys were not that plentiful at the time. So if you had a couple donkeys in your garage, it's like having a bunch of Mercedes and BMWs and Lexuses in your garage. So it's not like Abraham just has one of them now. He has like a whole fleet of Lexuses in his garage. And then I also mentioned to you that they get a, he gets camels. Camels were very rare at that time. They were just being introduced to this region of the world. Camels were the, were the exotic transportation of choice for the filthy rich. It's like the Ferrari Testarossa. So not only does he have garages filled with BMWs and Mercedes, but he also has a couple Ferrari Testarossas. And then he has male servants and female servants, and they're cooking his meals and taking care of his every need and polishing his bunions and all this. It's like he's, yeah, things are going really well for you, but there's a small problem. Your wife is in Pharaoh's house, in Pharaoh's harem, and Pharaoh is going, hmm, I can't wait. I cannot believe I found this 65-year-old smoking hot single woman, and we're going to have one heck of a wedding night. How do you think Abraham felt? He got what he wanted. Things went well for him, but things totally backfired on him, didn't they? Now, I want to point out another point of observation here. When I sin, others will suffer. When I sin, others will suffer. Isn't that what happened? Abraham sins, and who suffers? Sarai, his wife. In fact, you can say that when I sin, others will suffer, and probably it's going to be those I love most and love dearest who will suffer most. It's not just true for what happened to Abraham, but it's true what happens to us. When we sin, others, our wife, our husband, our children, they're the ones who suffer most. Well, things look pretty helpless. Abraham is living the lifestyle of the ultra-rich with his Ferraris and his BMWs and Lexuses. He's got everything he wanted, but his wife is waiting for her wedding night. But she's already married. There's nothing that Abraham can do to save himself from his sin. It's hopeless. And here's where we see grace. Grace in a way we never expected because God steps in to save Abraham from all the mess of sin that he made. Only God can save Abraham from his sin, and by the way, only God can save us from our sin. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? so that I took her for my wife. So then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
Now, here's where it gets interesting. It says, God afflicted Pharaoh and his household with plagues. And I was just wondering, I started doing some study. Plagues, okay, well, what, what kind of plague is this? And these plagues are sometimes used to describe skin diseases in the book of Leviticus. And then I looked at this thing in context, and it literally says, God uh, touched Pharaoh so he could not touch Sarai. Okay, I don't quite get that. You're touched in such a unique way that you can't touch her. It's a skin disease. And then I read some other commentators like Bruce Watke, and he's a Hebrew guy, and he says this, apparently this might have been a skin disease of the sexual organs. Like Pharaoh and his household had an outbreak of STD. Wedding night called off. Nobody's really interested in being intimate anymore. You know, God really put a kibosh on these plans. And I don't know, but I'm guessing there's one person in this household who is not suffering. What do you think her name is? Sarai. And all of a sudden, it's obvious that she's different. I don't know if this is exactly the way it unfolded, but I imagine everyone's like, okay, Sarai, why is everybody suffering, but you're not suffering? And I think she's the one who spilled the beans and said, oh, by the way, Pharaoh, I'm not just Abraham's sister. I'm actually his husband. And like God appeared to my hubby and he brought us over to the land of Canaan and he made this little promise that uh, whoever blesses us will be blessed and whoever curses us will be cursed and you're about ready to like marry me and I'm already married. This is a small sampling of the cursing that comes from God. And what happens at this point is it literally says just four words. Pharaoh says to um, Abraham, he says, here, take he says, here, wife, take, go. Not much discussion. Wife, your wife, go. Get her out of here. <laughs> Pharaoh and his entire household now are suffering from Abraham and his sin. Something else I want to point out to you. Very interesting. Some people say, well, at least Abraham ended up with a lot of stuff. I mean, he has the BMWs, the Lexuses, he's got the Ferraris, he's got all kinds of stuff. He's filthy, stinking rich. Now he goes out of town much better off than when he came into town. You see how good God is? I'd like to challenge that. Here's a little phrase I put down in your notes. Whatever I gain by sin is always a curse. Whatever I gain by sin is always a curse. Because in the next chapter... When Abraham and Lot go back to the promised land, they have a problem. They have too much stuff. In fact, what they end up having to do is divide the land. And Abraham gives away part of the promised land to Lot, which he was never supposed to do. Why did he do it? They had too much stuff. And God didn't want them to have that much stuff. Later in the story... If you guys know the story, what happens is Sarah can't get pregnant, and she's frustrated, she's old, and she still hasn't had a child to be able to give Abraham the descendants that God has promised. So what does she do? She takes this maidservant called Hagar and says, here, Abraham, have her as your girlfriend. 
Maybe you can get her pregnant. She is Hagar, Sarai's Egyptian maidservant. In this passage, Abraham was given manservants and maidservants from Egypt. Hagar gets into their family life right here as a consequence of Abraham's sin. She was never supposed to be in there. You see, even the things we gain by sin are actually a curse. I I just want to challenge you. Maybe God has something in your life today that you gained by a a wrongful way or a sort of a dishonest way, and you're saying, well, at least that's past, at least that's over with. And for whatever reason, you're just enjoying it and living off of it. My, My challenge to you is get rid of it. If God wanted it in your life, He would have gotten into your life the right way, not the wrong way. Whatever you gain by sin will actually become a curse. Abraham leaves town. He sort of slinks out of town. And you could imagine what the ride back to Canaan was like. I don't think there was too much uh, talking between Sarai and Abraham. You know, it's like, oh, thank you, honey, for almost pawning me off. And like uh, almost getting violated by Pharaoh. Sort of a cold ride back. Abraham has been rebuked by a pagan king who held marriage in higher honor than he did. Abraham has almost pawned off and lost his his wife. Abraham's failed. He's failed miserably. He's failed royally. What should he do? Look what the text tells us. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. What did Abraham do? He went back to where God was speaking to him at first. Abraham repented. He went backwards and he went back to the beginning where he knew he was in a right relationship with God, where he knew he was in the right place with God and God was speaking. My friends, some of us here this morning have gone down to Egypt. You know, things were going well in our relationship with God, but we ended up in pressure because of a trial, and we sort of walked away with God. We got real busy, and we stopped reading His Word, and then we got real busy on the weekend, and we stopped attending church, and so we walked away out of fear and busyness, and then under fear of all the pressure and trials, maybe we even sinned. What does God call you to do? Come back. Come back to the beginning. Go back to what you were doing at first when you knew you were in a right relationship with God and He was speaking to you. Maybe you were reading the book of Ephesians. But then life got busy and disorganized and you walked away. Go back to reading the book of Ephesians. Pick up where you left off. Maybe in your marriage. You know, things were going really well and you used to pray together at night before you drifted off to sleep. 
You used to text one another little verses that you would read in Scripture during the day just to be a little bit of encouragement. But then got, things got busy and the trials of life hit you and you, you actually walked away and now you're sort of in a cold place with each other. God says repent and go back to the beginning. Go back to praying together before you fall asleep. Go back to giving the Scriptures to one another and to building each other up. Go back to where you were in a right relationship with me. But you know, even more impressive than this idea of going back to the beginning is God's grace. Think about this. When Abraham had made a total mess of life and he was caught in the cocoon that he weaved of his own web of sin, there's nothing he could do to save himself from his wife being violated. It's then where God stepped in by amazing grace and came to the rescue. And folks... That's not just true for Abraham. That's true for us, isn't it? All of us have spun webs of our own sin. We found ourselves in hopeless situations to free ourselves from our sin. But the distant son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, he stepped in. He died in our place for our sin to free us from the web of sin that we wove. And by faith in Him, all the eternal consequences of our sin are completely removed. And by faith in Him, He promises to release the very power that sin has over us in this life. Totally to change us. Just like God saved Abraham by grace that he didn't deserve, God saves us by grace that we don't deserve through the greater Son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. My friends, for some of us who have walked away, God's challenge today is this. He has grace, grace that is greater than all your sin. He'll save you. He'll free you, no matter how hopeless it looks. And He says, come back. Come back to where you were in a right relationship with me and we were on speaking terms and we were walking closely together. Go back to the beginning. Amen? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness, your grace, and your love to Abraham, but more importantly, your kindness and grace and love to us through Jesus. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.